In this discourse is a nun. Her name is Dhammadina, and she is an arahant, fully enlightened. And she has a discussion with a layman called Yisaka, who is a non-returner, and he used to be her husband. And uh, he is asking her questions, because obviously he recognizes that she is um, enlightened and can help him also. This discourse, which is actually given by this nun Dhammadina, concerns practically everything that is of the essence in the teaching. It's called Shula Vedala Sutta, but it's usually known to be the discussion between Dhammadina and Jisaka. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the Swirl Sanctuary. That's a particular place where he often stayed. And then the late follower of Isaka went to the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina, and after paying respect to her, he sat down at one side, and when he had done so, he asked her. He's addressing her as lady, but... Um, I think that's just a matter of translation. Um, probably venerable lady or something like that. Embodiment. I have heard said embodiment. What is called embodiment by the Buddha? Now she answers him. Friend Visaka, the five aggregates affected by clinging are called embodiment by the Blessed One. That is to say, the form aggregate affected by clinging, the feeling aggregate, perception, mental formations, and the consciousness aggregate. These five aggregates affected by clinging are called embodiment by the Blessed One. And the fo lay follower Visaka was delighted in the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina's words, and after agreeing, he asked her many more questions. Now, embodiment is a word we don't really use in our language, in our everyday language. And um, it's not often used in the suttas either. So what what is being talked about is how does a person come to be? How are we embodied? How, not just with this body, but how does a person come to be? And the Buddha has said that we come to be because of the five aggregates affected by clinging. Now they are affected, they are in Pali they are called pancha, which is five, upadana, clinging, pancha, upadana, kanda, kandas. Upadana is clinging, kandas are the aggregates. They are called the five aggregates of clinging. The reason the Buddha calls them that is that we identify with them. And because we identify, we cling to them, of course, so tightly that we think they are me. Our clinging is not just wanting to have them. Now, very often we think of the word clinging 
as if it's something that we like to keep. But who has ever thought about, I want to keep my feelings? Nobody thinks like that. Or I want to keep my thinking. One doesn't think like that. One identifies with it and, and realizes or recognizes these things that are happening as to be oneself. And that is why there is the embodiment of the person. So what is the first question? How does it come about through those five aggregates? The body and then the core of the mind. So now he wants to know more, of course. He says, the origin of embodiment is being said. What is called the origin of the embodiment? Fancy Saka, it is that craving which renews being and accompanied by the light and lust, it delights in this and that, that is to say, craving for sensual desire, craving for being, craving for non-being. That is called the origin of embodiment by the Blessed One. He's actually sort of giving her a test whether she knows all the answers that the Buddha has given. So he wants to know where does this originate from that we are a person. In other words, he wants to get to the root of this matter. And uh, she said it's the craving that is the origin of being a person. And we are the three cravings, the craving for our sensual gratification, the craving to be, and then the opposite, the craving not to be. The craving not to be is often misunderstood because it also concerns the self-idea. As long as, and this is the um, essential point of the whole thing, and I'll try to make it very clear, and if it isn't clear, please ask. The essential thing is that because we believe ourselves to be those five things, and even if you leave the body out, maybe if you've already given up the idea that you're the body, as still that idea, well, this is me walking along there, the four things of mind, well, as long as we think we are that, we naturally have those three cravings. And it's not that we crave not to be. That isn't the, the solution for this at all. That's also a, the, the craving of the self, because when everything goes wrong, then I wish I were dead, that type of thing. Well, that doesn't answer anything. The answer to the solution to this whole um, puzzle is that we recognize one day that there are just those aggregates and there's nobody in there. Because we say, I feel, doesn't mean that that's a correct statement. It's just a statement. We make so many statements. Are they all correct? Statements and statements and statements, and most of them aren't even half correct. So, as long as we believe, strongly believe, that there is somebody who feels, somebody who perceives, somebody who thinks, and somebody who has consciousness, so long will there is a self. It's a belief system, and as long as we adhere to it, it's there. It's actually very um, much 
can be compared with the belief system in God. As long as we believe there is God, there is God. That's why Master Eckhart said that God exists because of the creature. And of course at first wouldn't have any part of it. Because the creatures, he called people creatures, believe that there is God, for there is God. As long as we believe there's me, there's me, obviously. Quite simple. The only thing to do is not to, not to continue that. That's not so simple. So with these, with that, he says, uh, she explains to him that the three cravings are the origin, the um, original beginning of this embodiment of a person because we crave to be. That's why we're here, because we have craving, we mean craving to be. Now, he wants to know the next uh, uh, point. Cessation of embodiment. What is called cessation of embodiment by the Buddha? Friendly Sattva. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of those same cravings. This is called cessation of embodiment by the Blessed One. So quite simple and logical, isn't it? Very difficult to do. He wants to know how do we get rid of this person, this idea. And she says it's a remainderless fading and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, rejecting of the craving, the craving to be. When there's no craving to be, naturally, there is nobody there. When we, as long as we crave to be, we will return. When we don't crave to be, the mind doesn't have anywhere to get a hold on. But that's not enough, of course. Because now he asks, the way leading to the cessation of embodiment, the way, is, uh, what is called the way leading to the cessation of embodiment. Friendly Saka, it is this noble eightfold path. That is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Now, we have already dis discussed the Noble Eightfold Path, but it does reappear over and over again. It is like a, um, like the, the a pinpoint where everything turns round on, because again and again it is mentioned. It is the, the three aspects of the teaching, the moral conduct, the concentration, and the insight. Now, obviously, all three are here, right view and right intention are insight, right speech, right action, right livelihood are the moral conduct, and right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration is the um, concentration aspect. So in order to get to this cessation, we have to practice a Noble Eightfold Path. Most of these things we can practice Right view, of course, we can also practice, but eventually it will have to arise out of the practice. 
right effort might be sometimes a little difficult and right concentration doesn't always come together and mindfulness is of course not always present now he wants to know something else is that clinging the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging or is the clinging something apart from these five aggregates affected by clinging well, that sounds exactly like the questions that people ask these days, doesn't it? It's very, uh, uh, wants to know the details of it. Friends, we suffer. That clinging is neither the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging, nor is it something apart. It is the desire and lust comprised in these five aggregates affected by clinging that is the clinging there. <coughs> Anybody know what this means? <laughs> I guess I better explain this. Okay, he wants to know whether clinging, which is obviously what we have to give up because it's been said here, the remainder is fading and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of the craving, that's the cessation. So now he wants to know whether this clinging to the five aggregates, whether that is actually they're the same as the five aggregates or whether it is something apart from them. Well, obviously, she says quite rightly, and she was supposed to have been extremely uh, wise, this nun, um, that it's neither the same nor is it something different. It's one aspect of it. The, the five aggregates, one is the body, and then we have the four of the mind, and it's desire and lust which sits in those five aggregates. So that is the clinging. And so it isn't apart from it, it's not the same, it is uh, one aspect of it. Is that clear? Hmm? Yeah? 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 Okay. <laughs> okay, now, now he goes on to ask, how does there come to be this embodiment view, this personality view? I think the word embodiment is misleading. It's a personality view. Here, friend Visaka, the untaught, ordinary person who has no regard for the noble ones and is unconversant with their Dhamma and undisciplined in it, who has no regard for enlightened ones and does not know their Dhamma and is undisciplined in it, sees the body as self, or self as possessed of the body, or body in self, or self in body. He sees feeling as self, or self as possessed of feeling, or feeling in self, or self in feeling. And the same with perception, and the same with mental formation, and the same with consciousness. One sees consciousness as oneself, or that the self has a consciousness, I have consciousness, or the consciousness is in the self, or the self is in the consciousness. Now, all of that has been taught by everybody. That is how there comes to be the embodiment view, the personality view, I should say. So, it's not only that we usually choose one of these, usually we take the whole lot. That not only that we think of ourselves as that the feeling is self, we don't think usually like that, 
but we think that we have feelings. Self possesses feelings. Sure, we have, I have a feeling, actually. So self possesses feelings. But the second one is very, very popular. Then we also, then there says the feeling in the self. So there's a self and the feeling are in that self. It's not so popular. Or the self sits in the feeling. That's more popular again. The self sits inside the feeling. And the same with all the others. It's not that um, the mental formations are me. It's more that me has mental formations. Because we also know from personal experience without any practice that we have all, yes, let's talk about the mental aspect, all four of them. So sometimes I have thoughts and sometimes I possess feelings and sometimes I possess consciousness. Sometimes I have nice consciousness and unpleasant consciousness. So we don't make any distinction that there is such a conglomerate of stuff how could self be such a conglomerate? But what we consider to be is that we have all those things and also that there is a me in those things. For instance, we see. Well, obviously, there's somebody sitting and they're seeing, isn't there? Or is there just seeing? The Buddha says there's just seeing. But we don't think like that. We think there's somebody there seeing. So me is in the consciousness. The self is sitting in that consciousness, looking out through my eyes. And sometimes the self that sits inside and looks out through my eyes is quite a nice self and likes everything it sees, and other times it's a nasty self and doesn't like anything it sees. The Buddha also gave a discourse once on the, on the number of selves that one can have in any given moment. One can have the, the nice one and the unpleasant one, and then one can have the pleasant one, uh, and then one can have the past one and the future one. So that's three times two, that's already six different selves. And then one can have the one through the eyes and then the one through the ears and through the six different ones, so that's six times six, that's 36 different selves already. And it goes on and on like that. And then the one can have those 36 in the past, the present, and the future times three. And <laughs> but it goes on into the, can go into the millions because every feeling, every every thought and every consciousness has had me having it or um, me, uh, not only me possessing it, but me being in it. So there's no end to these selves that we could have. So because of this, there is a personality rule. Now he wants to know, but how does there come to be no impersonality view? Now he wants to get down to where it really matters. He wants to get out of this personality view. Well, here, the well-taught, uh, here, friendly Saka, the well-taught, noble disciple who has regard for noble ones is conversant with their Dhamma, has regard for Arahants and is conversant with their Dhamma, does not see form as self or self as possessed of form or form in self or self in form. He does not see feeling as self or self as possessed of feeling or feeling in self, or self in feeling, and the same for perception, and the same for mental formation, and the same for sense consciousness. And that is how there does not come to be the personality view. Now here is definitely only spoken about the view. The view is actually what happens at stream entry. 
Now both of these people are far beyond that. One is already an Arahant and knows all the answers anyway. And <clears throat> the other one, the one who's asking the questions, Visaka, he's a non-returner, so he's long past this, this personality view. One could assume that they are having this discussion not so much that he wants to know, but just as a dumber discussion to, s to have a kind of a clarity of the simplest answers to these profound questions. Because the personality view is not... Uh, um, the personality view is changed at extreme entry and the lack of a self the complete lack of a self is um, starts being experienced at non-returner and then is completed at arahant so the first two steps they're still not feeling the non-self they're knowing it so they have right view <clears throat> that's what they're talking about because this answer is an answer of understanding this is not an answer of having had a past moment it's an answer of understanding so that there is right view we let go of this personality view and it is said that um, he does not see it like that and he does not see it like that. So he sees, he understands. But in order to understand like that, one has to get beyond uh, skeptical doubt or doubt that this could be so. Now, of course, one can only have the complete lack of doubt when one has experienced it, obviously. Because then one knows. There's no question about it anymore. The, one can also have the lack of doubt when one has complete and utter faith and loyalty. But that too makes a stream enter. So it's only the stream enter that really is without any doubt at all. So it's either the one with complete faith or the other one who's experienced it. The one who understands may sometimes understand and sometimes not. That's quite possible. But in order to understand how this is like that, one has to see One has to see the dukkha in the wrong view. As long as we see ourselves possessing these aggregates, either their mind, or me being in them, because that is also, of course, very strong, that I am sitting in that feeling, because if I wasn't sitting in that feeling, why would I have to react to it? I mean, if there's nobody in that feeling, who's going to react to it? The feeling is just a feeling. So obviously we're sitting in the middle of the feeling and we're sitting in the middle of the sense consciousness. So we need to understand how much dukkha that creates for us. And then, because it does, we're willing to see it in a different way. And if we see it in a different way, we can actually understand that this is a belief system which we adhere to for no other reason, because we have never heard another one. Now, obviously, the letting go of this belief system isn't going to get us enlightened, but at least it puts us on the right path. 
Now, uh, this uh, Visaka wants to know what the Noble Eightfold Path is, goes back to the Eightfold Path. And so she uh, enumerates it again for him, which he has done already once before. Now he wants to know, is the Noble Eightfold Path conditioned or unconditioned? So she says, the Noble Eightfold Path is conditioned. There is nothing that's unconditioned except Nibbana. Everything else is conditioned, so it's not a difficult question. The condition means that there is something that has to come together in order to make it happen. Are the three groups included in the Noble Eightfold Path, or is the Noble Eightfold Path included in the three groups? Yeah. The three groups, I just mentioned them already. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. The um, moral conduct, the uh, concentration, and the insight. So he wants to know, are they included in the path, or is the path included in the three groups? I mean, I don't know why he wants to know these things, but anyway, that's what he says. The three groups are not included by the Noble Eightfold Path, but the neighbor, no, sorry, the Noble Eightfold Path is included by the three groups. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. These dhammas are included in the virtue group. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration are included in the concentration group, and right fuel, right intention are included in the insight group. So now he wants to know what these... No, not everything. He wants to know what concentration is. What is concentration? What is the sign of concentration? What is the equipment of concentration? And what is the development of concentration? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Let's see what she has to say about that. Unification of mind is concentration. The four foundations of mindfulness are the sign of concentration. I say they signal it. The four right endeavors are the equipment of concentration, and the repetition, development, and cultivation of those same dhammas are the development of concentration therein. Right. Well, we know that the unification of mind is a one-pointedness. Huh? That's what you get when the absorption takes place. Absorption is concentration. The four foundations of mindfulness are the sign of concentration. They signal the concentration. They are the signs of it. Then the four right endeavors. That the four right endeavors are the uh, four supreme efforts, the same thing. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen. Make a wholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. They are the equipment. In other words, they are the basic tools for concentration that there's no negativity in the mind. It's quite easily understandable if one has been very angry or upset or fearful or anything like that, that the concentration is not going to happen. And to repeat and develop and cultivate these aspects, that's the development of concentration. So one has to be mindful and one has to practice these four supreme efforts and then the unification of mind takes place. We have already discussed all of these aspects because they are the basic teaching.
Now he wants to know how many processes are there, lady? There are these three processes, friendly Saka, bodily, verbal, and mental. It sometimes calls the three doors, body, speech, and mind. That's the only doors that we have. But lady, what is a bodily process, and what is a verbal one, and what's a mental one? In-breath and out-breath are bodily process. Thinking and exploring are verbal. Perception and feeling are mental. Hmm. I would have thought speech is verbal. Thinking and exploring are a verbal process. Ah. Yeah. And, and they've got the, they got the party at the bottom. Yes, yes. It's an, uh, and very unfortunate. It's Vitaka Vichara. So Vitaka Vichara is not really thinking and exploring, but the verbal process of Vitaka Vichara, it's when it's used for the jhanas, it's initial and sustained application, but obviously that's not meant here. Um, it's the discursive thinking that is meant here as a verbal process. The discursiveness of the mind is sometimes called vitaka vichara. So when the mind talks, it doesn't have to be the, the talking that comes out in sound, but it's the mind that gives all stories. And then perception and feeling are a mental process. Hmm. Perception and feeling, that's the other two aspects of the mind. So the discursive thinking, in the sense consciousness is linear, not inception. Or maybe it's better explained in the next thing. Eh? So he wants to know why are in and out bodily process? Why, are, why is this uh, discursive thinking a verbal process and why are perception and feeling mental? In and out belong to a body. These are phenomena bound up with a body. That's why in and out are bodily process. Having previously thought, subsequently one breaks into speech. That is why the thinking is a verbal process. Okay. Perception and feeling belong to mind. These are phenomena bound up with mind. And that is why perception and feeling are mental process. So the explanation she gives is that the thinking gives rise to speech, um, which is true, of course. We first have to think it before we can say it. But um, the thinking, of course, is also conditioned and also has a cause. But this is how she breaks it up anyway. I don't see why she doesn't just say talking is verbal. Um, so now he wants to know, how does there come to be the attainment of the cessation of perception and feeling? When one is attaining cessation of perception and feeling, it does not occur to the person, I shall attain this, or I am attaining it, or I have attained it, but rather the mind has previously been developed in such a way that it inclines, induces, sorry, induces that state. So, 
after he's uh, asked her about the different processes which exist in the mind, he now wants to know how we can come to the cessation of the mental process. Because obviously, in any kind of meditative attainment, the bodily process is not being attended to, and the uh, verbal process, which discursive thinking, is also not attended to, which leaves then perception and feeling. And even though the jhana is neither perception nor non-perception, it still has some perception in it, and when one comes out of it, of course, it's still everything is the same as it was before. He wants to know how to get beyond that. So she says, one doesn't make up one's mind to do that. What happens is that the mind has been so well developed that that state can happen, the cessation of the perception. The cessation of perception is the past moment. He wants to know about the past moment. And that is the moment when the perceiver and the perceived become one so that there is no knowledge of perception. Because if there's nobody there to perceive, then nobody knows that anything has been perceived. Now, when a, now he wants to know, when a person is attaining the cessation of perception and feeling, which dhammas come first in him? the bodily process, or the verbal process, or the mental process. Uh, when a person is attaining cessation of perception and feeling, first the verbal process ceases, discursive thinking, then the bodily process, and then the mental process. Well, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? As one stops with the discursive thinking in the meditative process, then the body is no longer, uh, as one becomes concentrated, the body is no longer uh, of any um, consequence, and then the mind process can also come to that moment of stillness. Now he wants to know, how does there come to be emergence from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling? When a person is emerging from the attainment of cessation, it does not occur to the person, I shall emerge, or I am emerging, or I have emerged, but rather the mind has previously been developed in such a way that it induces that state. While having come in, the emergence is, of course, automatic. Now, when a person is emerging from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling, which phenomena arise first? Bodily process, verbal or mental? How does one come back? When a person is emerging from the attainment, first mental process arises, then bodily process, then verbal process. So first is the recognition. The perception comes first, the recognition of what has happened. And after that recognition, then one becomes aware of body again. And body usually feels different little, uh, yes, quite somewhat different. And verbal process, then comes the um, explanation. First perception and the feeling maybe also, and then body and then the explanation. When a person has emerged from attainment of cessation of perception and feeling, how many kinds of con contact touch him? 
then a person has emerged from the attainment of perception, uh, of cessation of perception feeling, three kinds of contact touch him. Void contact, signless contact, and desireless contact. That's really, really deep stuff. <laughs> the uh, cessation is the still point, huh? That's the past moment. And the uh, emerging from is a fruit moment. And that's what all his questions, of course, have led up to. He wants to know how he's going to be an Arahant because she is and he isn't. So he wants to do his last step. And so he wants to get some pointers. Well, understandably so. <laughs> because he used to be married, married to her. <laughs> so he probably feels that he has a right to know. So the, uh, the still point is the, the cessation, huh? And then comes the emerging from that, which is the fruit moment. And there what first arises is the perception again. One perceives what has happened. <coughs> Next thing that arises is that the body becomes known again, feels a bit different. And then comes the explanation, the verbal thing. But now he wants to know what kind of contact. That's a funny way of expressing that. And what is being answered are the three doors through which the attainment of liberation can be achieved. The void contact, that is the, uh, the understanding of anatta. The signless contact, the understanding or the experience of anicca. And the desireless contact, the experience of uh, wishlessness, of dukkha. In other words, one of the three that one has chosen as one's main subject, that comes up as the, as the, um, as the lead-up to the cessation and is seen in one of these three ways. If one has chosen Dukkha as one's main subject for investigation and insight, then it comes up as a complete understanding that the only way not to have dukkha is to have no desire. So that's a desireless contact. If one has chosen impermanence as one's investigation and as one's insight object, then it comes up quite clearly that because one has investigated impermanence so often and so much that there's nothing in the universe that has any significance. There are no signs anywhere that say, hello, here I am, here you can rest. This is, this is completely safe, nothing, nowhere. And if one has chosen anatta, non-self, as one's investigation and insight object, then one comes, it comes quite clearly to, to that person that there is no core, in this self. Now the word void is also chosen by the uh, translator. I mean, it could be emptiness. <coughs> it could be nothingness. I mean, all of these words are the same. Emptiness, nothingness, void. Um, it's very often completely misunderstood that, and also completely mixed up because the, uh, the relative reality and the absolute reality are mixed up together and it never works. 
void is sometimes understood that in reality nothing exists here which on a relative level is complete nonsense it's all here and or that one is also misunderstood that there is an, a, a void that, that there is a void somewhere which one has to get to also an understanding I've heard none of this makes any sense and has no bearing on the matter at all the only thing that it means is no matter what whether that is the earth itself or is the person it doesn't have an unchanging core substance and therefore it's void of in the person's uh, case of a self and it's void of significance and it's void of that which we're looking for the point of safety or security it is void of it's not that it's void in itself this is so much mixed up and in written wrongly and all that unfortunately Buddha does not go into details on it so that's why one has always this opportunity to make up one's own ideas about everything if one hasn't um, experienced it so these are the three um, doorways to liberation and all three lead exactly to the same thing of course and all three each one has its uh, characteristic as the investigation object is that quite clear all of this or is there any question on that uh, you said uh, that uh, uh, you have to uh, direct the mind to work with Yes, here she she says that um, how does she ask how does there come to be the attainment of the cessation of perception and feeling, and then she says that the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling is not done because one says I shall attain that or I am attaining or I have attained but rather the mind has previously been developed in such a way that induces that state what that means is that all these statements that are made there I mean they're foolish no I shall attain the cessation I am attaining the cessation I have attained the cessation the mind has been developed to such a point where it has seen and understood that all the things everything that is conditioned is unsatisfactory and therefore wants to see the unconditioned that is the direction of the mind the deliberation of the mind so that is a necessary point and that is also uh, in the Vatavinita Sutta quite clearly brought out by the Buddha and also in the Samanapala Sutta if I remember right that having seen that all conditioned states which we are because we consist of conditions are unsatisfactory the mind wants to find that which is unconditioned but it doesn't say I want to see I want to get cessation of perception and feeling it just wants to find the unconditioned state is that what the question was? Yeah. anything else?
So now I'll read the end of this. Uh, now he has another question after this. When a person has emerged from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling, to what does his mind incline, lean and tend? When a person has emerged from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling, his mind inclines, leans and tends to seclusion. In other words, what, what he wants to know what happens after one has gained the past moment, and first, of course, it comes to the fruit moment, and then there's a necessity for a bit of peace and quiet in order to gain one's footing. Of course, one feels a bit shaky from a thing like this, so the mind has to, has to have some seclusion. There's lots more in this sutta, and I think that maybe I shall stop here because there's so many more things which are all actually quite um, profound and uh, I think this is uh, quite enough for for one discussion or one discourse anything that's unclear about this and if it isn't, why aren't we doing it, huh? It means the opposite of discursive thinking. You mean objective? No. No thought. No. Pinpointedness leads to the meditative absorption. Uh, the unification of mind is when the mind is really like a pinpointed arrow or something like that. And it doesn't have thought in it at all. So it doesn't refer to himself Well, the word unification of mind, uh, as it is used in the Buddha's discourses, <coughs> or in these discourses, is usually nothing other than being totally concentrated. That's all it refers to. It doesn't refer to uh, this, uh, what did you say, an awareness of one mind. Yeah. Well, that's the sixth jhana infinite consciousness that's the awareness of one mind only 
but that requires unification of mind. Yes, it's sometimes quite difficult. Actually, we could say there's one um, basic uh, understanding about the terminology. The simplest possible meaning is meant by the Buddha. And therefore, often misunderstood. So now, when the word consciousness is meant is being used here, it means nothing other than seeing, tasting, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. That's all it means. Sense consciousness. Whereas we could think of all sorts of things that it could mean. And of course, we also have the difficulty that the translations are not always a hundred percent, and a language that is being used changes and when it's uh, no longer being used like Pali, it's the dead language that we are not aware maybe of the uh, finer nuances that the language actually had so it's it's not a hundred percent we can only go by our own experience and then put that into the words and see how the whole thing matches together I mean what can get maybe 99% out of it. But unification leads to those states where you experience only one mind, for instance. Uh, the understanding of them comes together uh, after one's had the past moment, but one of them, you, one of them leads one to the past moment. There's one that one is more um, capable of investigating and understanding, and that one leads one to it. Afterwards, all three are clear. Yes, afterwards, yes. All three are clear. Nothing else. It's a very uh, um, profound uh, discourse he's giving. He's got everything in there that could possibly be thought, or he thinks of everything too. It keeps going still. So we'll have a, a continuation. A continuation will happen on Monday. At that time, we. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of a person that you can really love. 
Let the feeling for that person arise in you and fill you completely from head to toe. Visualize that person. Maybe somebody who's alive now or somebody who embodies an idea for you. Let yourself be flooded with the love for that person. Now recognize your love for that person as the quality of your heart, the loving quality of your heart. And let it fill you, surround you, without even thinking of that person, just as the quality that you have within you. And now imagine your heart as an enormously large mansion filled with jewels, silver and gold, precious stones. Beautiful flowers. all tingling and moving 
in love. And then throw the doors of this enormously large mansion open. And let people, one by one, enter and enjoy and refresh themselves and delight in the beauty of the mansion of your heart. First let those in whom you know. Each one to enter. Each one to delight. In the immensity of this beauty and love that is available. Let everyone in whom you know and you can think of. Let those in whom you've seen here and there, but you might not know them. Let the mansion of your heart grow larger and larger so that everybody has room in it. Make it more and more beautiful. most gorgeous and wonderful jewels, precious stones, flowers, gold and silver, pearls, tingling and swaying with love. Let all those people in 
whom he might never have seen or met, but whom you know about, that they exist. Anywhere on this globe, All searching for happiness, let them partake of the beauty that your heart can offer. they enter into your heart, they can feel the warmth, that's welcoming, embracing, comforting. Take the whole globe into your heart with all its beings, human, animal, seen or unseen. Let them all feel beloved and delight in this beauty. And now make the mansion of your heart so immense that it can encompass the whole universe. All of it within your heart. In beauty and in love. All beings all creation.
now anchor all the beauty that you have in the mansion of your heart so that it stays with you it's yours the precious stone the beautiful flower the kindling of love the warmth Let it all remain within the heart so that you can always delight in it and make it a place of delight for anyone who wishes to enter. Feel yourself filled with that warmth and delight. there be a heart connection amongst all beings. 